Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to the GIC call, or better known as Grounded in Commerce. It is Tuesday, May 5th. 2015. <clears throat> Grounded Commerce Group objective is bringing sense of seamless census world of commerce. People tend to get lost under their administrative processes and pursuits and be applicable to their private and public merits. We offer for our listeners a various exposures and educational materials to gain an educational foundation to one's pursuits. The material here is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice. We strongly suggest if you need legal or financial advice, seek a licensed attorney or financial planner or both. This material is for entertainment purposes only. And I would like to turn the mic over to Nancy. So is Nancy there? I am. Good evening, everyone. And um, in a recent um, webinar presentation, um, one of the topics or one of the start of the place where one might actually start to understand, start to build on and develop and figure out um, a strategy for um, a mortgage um, issue might be the statute of limitations. Now, I'm going to bring two perspectives in on it. One is from NOLO, um, which is a, you know, a fairly, um, I call it middle of the road, um, information site that gathers people um, to get and learn and understand what the topics are. Um, so I'll start in with the, the statute of limitations in a foreclosure action. If your lender waits too long to bring a foreclosure action against you, you might be able to stop the foreclosing using your statute of limitations for your state. Um, so. Sometimes there is a significant lapse of time between when you stop making the mortgage payment and then when your lender actually initiates the foreclosure action. The foreclosure might violate that state limit. And notice I'm not saying federal limit. I'm saying state limit. This happens. You can use this as a defense for your foreclosure. So that's the premise of what is being related tonight is using the statute of limitations as a defense. So the statute of limitations are a set of time limits bringing, for bringing a claim, like initiating a foreclosure action. If the case is filed after a certain date, it is not valid and can be dismissed. That time limit depends on the type of action that is claimed that is involved. There are different statute of limitations for oral contracts, written contracts, personal injury, and fraud. So all of those within your state have a different, maybe different or maybe the same, but from state to state, they are most certainly different, meaning not every one of the 50 states has the same limitations for each oral contract, written contract, personal injury, or fraud. 
So generally, in determining the limitations of what's relevant to home foreclosures is for the written contracts. And there are some states that have very specific statutes for statutes for foreclosures only. So again, not just looking at determining what your state statute is, but also digging a little bit further and finding out whether your particular state has a very specific statute for foreclosures. Each state has its own statute of limitations, which ranges from three years to 15 years. Most states fall within the three to six year range. To determine the statute of limitations in your state, look at your state statute. That's where we all are asking you to look at. The UCC is the, basically the overall guiding principle of, of statutes, but each state has adopted in part or in whole that um, the UCC in some, in some way, shape, or form, they've validated it through their state law. Um, so check out your um, state legislature's webpage that will be able to tell you where to find those um, you know, rules, regulations, restrictions, or statutes, however that your state calls them, um, and how to find that information. So when does the clock start running for the statute of limitations? The statute clock begins when usually when the mortgage starts to be in default. And in default is when the mortgage payments are being stopped. You, you've not you've made your last payment and you're not going to make any more payments. That is when, typically speaking, the clock starts for statute of limitations from this perspective. And it is calculated that last date of that last payment. There, there's some other thoughts and theories out there, but that's what I'm, I'm reading for at this point, or bringing forth at this time. So the statute of limitations, if it has expired, the lender's claim is invalid and the lender does not have an entitlement to enclose. If they are within the limitations, then, you know, or they, they're there before that time, then they move forward like nobody's business. So if, they're, if your state has a six-year time limit and they're filing in year five, there is no problem with that at all from their perspective. They have the whole opportunity to file a case, a lawsuit, and, and start the foreclosure proceedings. Okay? So the statute of limitations is an affirmative defense to foreclosure. It means the homeowner's duty to raise the issue in a foreclosure. If the, foreclosure, if the homeowner does not raise the statute of limitations defense, the defense is waived and the lender can continue to foreclose. Those are for the people who, as an example, if your state is in a six-year time frame, say it's year six and three months, okay? If that's during that time, the statute of limitations has run out and therefore, the lender, servicer, whoever is trying to attempt to collect payments from you will try to foreclose at that point, okay? Um, so, uh, what if the lender cancels or dismisses the foreclosure? Um, if the lender stops the foreclosure action, then often the lender has discovered a procedural error and then refiles the case. So the homeowner can use the statute of limitations in that, in that defense, meaning that um, 
say they're within the six-year time frame, and that's your state statute, and they file one at five and a half years, and they get you know into year six and a half uh, with the case, and all of a sudden they find out they've made some big boo-boos. Okay, they can dismiss their case, but then when they come back, excuse me, come back around to refile, they're outside the statute of limitations, and it is the homeowner's job to bring that to the defense because it wasn't in defense before. It wasn't a usable defense. And now it is a usable defense. So now it has the opportunity to be brought to the table or brought forth and, and used as an action. So um, that's where those ideas come from. And I'll read the statute of limitations from the perspective of um, the universal, or, sorry, universal, Uniform Commercial Code, UCC 3-118, Statute of Limitations. Section A, except as provided in subsection E, as in Edward, an action to enforce the obligation of a party to pay a note payable at a definite time must commence within six years after the due date or the date stated in the note, or if a due date is accelerated, within six years of after the accelerated due date. Section B, except as provided in subsection D as in David or E as in Edward, if demand for payment is made to the maker of a note payable on demand, an action to enforce the obligation of a party to pay the note must commence within six years after the demand. If no demand for the payment is made to the maker, an action to enforce the note is barred if neither the principal nor interest on the note has been paid for a continuous period of 10 years. Section C. Except as provided in subsection D as in David, an action to enforce an obligation of a party to an, to an unaccepted draft to pay the draft must be commenced within three years after dishonor of the draft or 10 years after the date of the draft, whichever period expires first. Subsection D is in David. So you notice that there was B and C says is except as provided in subsection D, okay? D says, an action to enforce the obligation of the acceptor of a certified check or the issuer of a teller's check, cashier's check, or traveler's check must be commenced within three years after the demand for payment is made to the acceptor or issuer as the case may be. So again, relating those both back to B and C. Now we get to section E as in Edward, and that is also as it relates to exception for A and B as in Baker. E states, an action to enforce the obligation of a party to a certificate of deposit to pay the instrument must be commenced within six years after demand for the payment is made to the maker. But if the instrument states a due date and the maker is not required to pay before that date, the six-year period begins when a demand for payment is in effect and the due date has passed. Subsection F. An action to enforce the obligation of a party to pay an accepted draft 
or other than a certified check must be commenced, one, within six years after the due date or dates stated in the draft or acceptance if the obligation of the acceptor is payable at a definite time, or two, within six years the date of the acceptance if the obligation of the acceptor is payable on demand. Section G, unless governed by other law regarding claims for indemnity or contribution, an action, one, the conversion of an instrument for money had and received, or like action based on conversion, two, breach of warranty, or three, to enforce an obligation a duty or a right arising under this article not governed by this section must be commenced within three years after the cause of action accrues. So from my perspective, it is a valuable learning opportunity to really understand your state-specific laws of statutes of limitations, to understand how that affects you in in all contracts, in oral, written, and you know, in in all the different ways, for you to understand what that is and what that means to you as a as a person, and how you go about in contracting your life and and making new arrangements and new agreements and all of those things. So um, it's definitely a worthwhile um, read and understanding and comprehension. So that's what I have for tonight. Anyone have any comments, questions, concerns, or other things potentially relating to maybe something uh, on the webinar? Other things like that? I'll make a comment, and mm -hmm. that is based on what I have learned, the statute of limitation um, I don't know that moot is the right term, but these, all of these examples that I've been seeing and reading about, party has no standing, so limitations isn't going to really affect these uh, false claimants as they come forward. It may help the, the homeowner in that they can't prove that they have a standing and that they're not the uh, party entitled to enforce, person entitled to enforce. Um, but, yeah, I understand that the statute of limitation is a, a datum to consider. It just seems like what's more relevant to all of the cases that I'm familiar with is how to defend against the false claimant, the pretender lender, as one particular lawyer calls them. Mm -hmm. Well, and is, from my perspective, what you've just brought up is is the pretender lender the one that is due the money? I mean, they may, be, they may be collecting it, but are they actually due it? And if they're due it, then what documents do they have to show that they're due it? And from that perspective, then not, not only that, but whom do they make a check payable to every month? If they're, if they're collecting and they're just the servicer, then... Whom are they making their payments to and what evidence do they have and what's that yeah. lender, servicer, 
Yeah, and if they can't prove that they're the person entitled to enforce, that means that they're collecting the payment by mistake. And that there is a remedy for that. Yes, to accept the payment by mistake is absolutely a remedy for that. So, yeah. If I may interject a little bit, so a lot of times a bank before the foreclosure will change into another servicer or something in order for to move a uh, case, and we're saying that maybe they are the the fictional, the tender lender, whatever, but they have no standing in court. So then if you could prove that they don't have any standing in court, then you go back in time, so you go back to maybe that was C, maybe go back to B and see whether or not they had any standing. And then you'll find it go all the way back maybe A to the duly qualified holder, UCC-3-301I, and they may have been the party, but they haven't got any payments for six years or over six years, and there's where your your standing comes in the fact that they were the person entitled to get the payments, and they never got any payments at all. And these other people were just you know, they had interest or something, but they were not um, part of the deal here. So, so I mean, from a certain perspective, confusing. the pretender lender or the false claimant really is putting quite a risk into their action especially by the informed homeowner, because if they're unable to prove that they're the person entitled to enforce, then that means that they're liable because they've been collecting the payments or whatever is the situation. So actually, they do have a risk now that I think about it. I mean, up to recently, it seemed like they face no risk because most people don't even show up in court to defend well, and, and I would assert that that's still pretty much the, the same, you know, the tide is changing ever so slowly. But, yeah, if if the homeowner is not aware of this information or, you know, or the attorney doesn't even pay attention, I mean, the homeowner's attorney, you know, is kind of oblivious to this, what one might call a pretender lender that shows up and says, oh, by the way, you know, this person was paying me and all of a sudden now they've stopped and, you know, I'm you know, I'm entitled to enforce. Well, you know, that right there is is where a lot of the, I'll call it confusion, um, can get settled in because, you know, again, I think, I, or I'm of the belief, how about that? I'm of the belief that attorneys are not trained in this information. They're not trained in the understanding of what happens in a mortgage. And therefore, um, and it's not their fault. They just, you know, that the two or ten hour class or one credit a class of whatever it was on real estate, you know, it was pretty dry and boring and it wasn't what they was interesting to them. So, you know, they really didn't pay attention. So, you know, from that perspective, it's not it'd be like um jumping into a different field. I I I guess I would equate it to, you know, someone that wanted to start a new career and, and maybe become an electrician but had no training in knowing how to become an electrician and and yet that first strike of that first, you know, two pairs of wires together when both of them are hot or one of them is hot, that could be a pretty dangerous situation. And and I think that the same thing equates from my perspective is, is that there are a lot of people that just aren't familiar with what the information is, which is, again, why we put on the calls. So people can have the understanding and, and be made aware of the opportunities for them to, to take action. And, and move forward. I'll give an example of a local acquaintance here. 
she was concerned about being able to continue to make her mortgage payments going forward because of a downturn in business, called up a bankruptcy attorney company firm who advertises on TV and in various media, print media, for being a bankruptcy law firm. And she explained her situation, asked, what are my alternatives? As I understand the way she explained it to me, they said, well, if you're not behind on your payments and you're not in foreclosure, then you might want to take a different course. Like um, you might just wait until you get so far behind that you have to uh, declare bankruptcy. So they basically steered her towards bankruptcy as her only option. And yet they advertise as bankruptcy advocate lawyer, I mean not bankruptcy, but um, foreclosure, helping um, foreclosure people. So I would equate that to the same thing as your engine or, or your transmission needs some help and, and it may, you go into the tire store to, to get some help because, you know, you think it's in your brakes and something and it has nothing to do. It's, it's in the same genre as a car or an automobile. It's in the same genre as a attorney firm. But yet, again, buyer beware, <laughs> you know, you're, you're put at the person that's the homeowner borrower is in the position of defending that property and the title. And, mm -hmm. um, and most of them don't know that they're in that responsibility. So it, it is a buyer beware kind of thing. And, and even with attorneys that say that they are, um, you know, working for the people, um, because there have been a few instances when those people later found out, the homeowners later found out that that person was actually working, had several other cases working for the bank, and they he couldn't figure out why they were dragging their feet and, you know, all kinds mm -hmm. of things were happening. So, yeah, it is a buyer beware, but this is the part of the education that we get to bring to the forefront so people can uh, make some, you know, conscious decisions about how to move forward and, and why why to move forward in a particular direction. In many instances, the lawyer will require an education. And so when people like my local acquaintance goes and asks for advice and essentially gets nothing, no no kind of useful advice, well, that's just an indication that def uh, defense lawyers, no, foreclosure defense lawyers really are not familiar. They're, they're going on the basic assumption that the bank has the right to enforce. And if that's the basic assumption, then they're not even going to look into any of those options. Well, what if they aren't? So they're only, I don't know what kind of defense protection they can provide people. Except, uh, well, just... Done by, um, if I may jump in. Um, it would seem to me that when we're speaking to the subject matter uh, to begin with is to recognize that the burden of proof falls upon the opponent. However, it is the way that it is set up uh, to force the opponent to reveal. We should recognize prior to litigation, if at all possible, because again, there are some people already involved with litigation and they don't have this option at least to begin with, would be regarded as forms of informal discovery which is certain documents are being requested. 
So what is it that we're actually requesting? Well, we're pushing um, essentially for a negative content audit, meaning those things in which are lacking. Now, within that is to recognize that if they don't provide the documents in which are supportive of them being a holder that is qualified, um, thusly entitled to enforce the instruments as uh, UCC 3-301 um, outlines for us, is to state that we can challenge only if we bring those subject matters forward, that is. This is one of the reasons why we have been rehearsing the various UCC codes that supports the various, we'll say, skips and jumps uh, to be able to plug all the areas um, where under the negative content audit, meaning the documents in which they do not have possession of, only draw suspicion to the matter that they are not the person that's entitled to enforce. Now, if those things are not brought forward at that point in time as the state as one, if a party had not moved into litigation, formal litigation, and they had moved in informal discovery, and um, and they did receive no response, which is not uncommon. It should be recognized that if they get drawn into litigation at that point, that that informal discovery request in which was offered is your first piece of evidence to support the fact that these persons here were not willing to resolve the subject matter outside of litigation. So it immediately draw suspect upon the opponent. That's one. The next part is, is those that are already involved with litigation and did not have opportunity to move forward with informal litigation or informal discovery. The moment that they, dis the moment that they receive some form of contact, such as they're going to be moving into litigation, it would be at that moment in time that they have, have to bring forward those various questions or the supporting documents that they are in fact the person that's entitled to enforce the instrument, which then again can be used in if they keep, we'll just say bum rush it, you know, or accelerate, um, that's under a, a judicial, I should, I should state in a judicial state, keeping in mind that if it's non-judicial and they're beginning to move forward, then one doesn't have much of an option other than to go in and file against the opponent. In other words, they're the ones that's going to have to move forward with a, a litigation civil suit against them as the state that it is of their, the homeowner borrower's um, assertion that this party who is claiming that they are the person that's entitled to enforce the instrument are, is not that person. And what is the foundation? They've refused to provide the documentation to you to support their claim. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that, that that now, in between that, we have to juggle it, you know, because we never know how the other party is going to respond. And that's one of the reasons why we seek to become well-rehearsed within the various elements of the UCC that supports the term holder. Uh, keeping in mind that if we look at test three under 3-301, uh, 
it it goes as far as to state even person who is in wrongful possession of the instruments may be entitled to enforce. So if we don't bring these elements up and show the judge that we're just not ignorant of the subject matter, and as long as we can get those things into record, at least in the least sense, it provides, um, if the lower court rules against us, at least the appellant court has the opportunity to view that our rights had been trampled on at that point. So it's just something to consider. There's something else too we might want to consider too is you're supposed you know, it's very difficult to go to court and do it yourself. You know, I mean I've tried many, many times, but it is, it really is. And so what we're saying is maybe you know, you instruct, you get an attorney, and you instruct the attorney what to do, and you bring the law to the bench, you know, instead of, uh, you know, that's what we're trying to, you know, tell some people, so that, you're, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of walking into court, hey, this is what's going on, and that attorney will speak for you, so, yeah, but uh, I just want to put that up for consideration tonight, too, so. Thank you for the input. It is it is very valuable. I was gonna say it's very valuable to do your homework on your own attorney, whoever you're considering on hiring. Finding out whom they have um helped in the past, their past cases, find out if they in fact worked for a bank. Um, you know, do do your due diligence. Don't just pick the first guy off the street just because, you know, your neighbor says, oh, yeah, that guy was good. Well, what did he do for you? Well, yeah, he got this and did that and did that. But as we all know, every case is different. And if you try to bring his case into being like just like yours, you're going to get hurt somewhere because that's not going to be what happens. But within that same vein, would we not want to have parties recognize a significant element is a chain of title assessment? It is. There you go. That's the most important foundation first step. And if a party does have a chain of title assessment done, they at least have something that, uh, let's just say that if they're crunched for time, they uh, they haven't had opportunity to interview attorneys, Um that in between having a chain of title assessment done and perhaps uh, speaking uh, to uh, persons that are familiar with the subject matter, that they could at least uh, buy themselves some time whereby they just don't get ramshotted over. And in the same breath, that chain of title assessment can be used for, let's say, um, something for the homeowner borrower to interview the attorney against. In other words, if the attorney doesn't know any of these things and they're in a time crunch, it would probably be within their best interest to move on down the pike and find somebody else uh, because they don't have time to, you know, to um, get, bring that attorney up to speed on the subject matter. Again, they're limited on time. Um, other, and so I, I would say that it becomes a tool 
uh, for them to understand where the defects are lying within the title itself, keeping in mind, of course, that generally if we're recognizing defaults or defective instruments uh, relative to the assignment, more likely than not, it's also going to uh, begin to embody elements of the note as well. Noting again, those are two different, two different areas. Uh, if uh, one party is moving towards a quiet title action, that itself is just strictly to the, the deed or the mortgage, uh, which has nothing to do with the note. And then again, if the subject matter is, is that the, uh, the opponent is moving forward with a note argument, the chain of title assessment will still provide them with uh, insight to know who was the last person to be touching upon that title. Therefore, they can view the endorsements that are on the promissory note and ultimately, uh, suggestively, be able to take a note argument and turn it into a uh, quasi-in-rem quiet title action at that point, as to state this person here who is making claims of being a person that's entitled to enforce the instrument is predicated upon them being in possession of the title. If they're not in possession of the title, then the note, although uh, keeping in mind that the note at that point would become unsecured, but the issue is, is if they are not the person that's entitled to enforce the obligation being the deed, then their argument as far as any foreclosures against the property goes moot at that point. They can't foreclose on the property. They could only move forward with a note argument at that point. Which you should be able to defeat that as well. And an unsecured note argument as best versus a secured note argument. Correct. <laughs> Which is a huge advantage from my perspective in, in knowing that if you're talking about an unsecured debt versus a secured debt, yeah, I, any day would be rather be in court on an unsecured debt uh, issue rather than a secured debt. So, well, when we look at the subject matter of what, um, what is it, um, Carpenter versus Logan, that sets the sets the stage there as to recognize the significance of those instruments, um, whereby the note. Uh, itself really carries no ballast with it if there isn't a, uh, a reason for that note, and that's the deed. If they can't prove that they are in assignment proper on that deed, that makes it kind of difficult for them to, to move forward with the note argument. So, again, it is of my assessment, the chain of title assessment earmarked towards um, the title, the assignments themselves, that's that right there is the foundation of the subject matter in my in being of my assessment. And I would say amen to the amen and yes, chain of title assessment is the one way from my perspective to really get into the nitty gritty of, of the, as you call it, the voids, what's missing, what's not there. Um, I want to just uh, run this opportunity by so that people can see or hear how someone actually might think that someone has a right, but I want you to listen to really carefully into the 
into the description so that you can possibly pull out what's real and what's not real. Because I know there, there's many people out there that, you know, they're hearing the information, but they have a hard time relating it to their specific case or cause. So we'll run through a couple of different scenarios here to hopefully help people grasp that. So let's say party A, homeowner, took out a loan, and that loan was immediately transferred over to another lender, servicer, we're unsure, don't really know. But like within the first couple of months, they, they distribute it over to someone else. The borrower made payments to that second servicer, we'll call them, uh, servicer number two, and they made payments for about four years because it's still within the statute of limitations. So um, then all of a sudden, the borrower stops making the payments, and that last payment was made to, to servicer number two, and all of a sudden, servicer number three shows up. And servicer number three says, oh, hold it, wait a minute, you owe me a whole bunch of money because this guy over here has gone bankrupt or gone out of business or we don't know what's happened to him, but... We, we're taking over their assets, okay? So party or servicer number three is now sending you letters demanding and all these kinds of things. Um, maybe they even put in a default and then rescind the default. Um, you know, maybe they don't put in a default at all and just keep going down the road. And you get close to that six-year mark of your last payment to the servicer number two. And they don't do anything except for issue a um, acceleration letter. Okay? So they issue you, an acceleration letter saying, hey, we want to accelerate your loan. Are you talking about lender number three or servicer yeah. number three? Servicer number three will now send you a acceleration uh -huh. letter. Just, just a little bit like five years and you know, five years and ten months, just a couple of months before shy of that six-year mark. Okay, so the question is, after the six-year period, so just because they filed an acceleration letter, six years passes, the servicer number three, person that issued the service or the acceleration letter, do they have a right to file a lawsuit? I mean, as a claimant, as, as holding the note and the deed and title and everything else. And this is after the dollar stopped paying stopped for paying five for years five and years some months? Some months? Correct. So no well, payments have been received by servicer number three. But servicer number three filed a letter of acceleration just mm -hmm. just prior to the six-year period. Now, six years has gone by, so it's six years now, six months, or year number seven, whatever. And the question is, can servicer number three now file a lawsuit against the homeowner? Yes, they may not have standing, but yes, they can file a lawsuit. As I understand it, you can sue for anything about any, you know, at any time. Okay, great. <laughs> but would they have standing? 
Okay, so how would they have standing? I mean, that would be the question. That's the, that's the question that what would make them have standing in order for them to be able to do that, to well, file that acceleration. That's, yeah, that's what we're looking for in the chain of title assessment is to find out where all these documents are and how do you have a right to file that. That's what we're asking. And, and they're using the acceleration clause as a way to try to tie into the code, the UCC code, that says if they have not made a, you know, have made a payment or accelerated the note. So there's information in that UCC code about acceleration, and they're attempting to use that. And the question is, can they use that, or is that a diversionary tactic? It's all it's all contrived confusion. It really is. Okay. The question is: the question is, do they have any work orders that would that would support that they can do an acceleration? That would be one element that I would wait want to consider, and that would have to be some kind of discovery. Another two is: the duly qualified holders, only one who can enforce uh, can claim default. So, who are these people saying that they can claim a default? You know, so. Did they, are they an agent for them that can do that? So that's for the work orders, or how are they how are they able to do that? So that would be the what you're trying to say right now for um, an acceleration clause. Right. Okay. Okay. Another example would be, say you got a loan from Bank A, and Bank A was Bank A, and then all of a sudden they changed their name slightly to Bank A Servicing Company, Bank A Mortgage Servicing Company. So now it's changed its name slightly. However, you don't really notice because you think it's just another division of that same company. And it may be. Okay, but let's say that this is a totally different company with the same name, or this, I should say similar name. So... Um, with now with the words servicing in it. So, Bank A Servicing Company. It's still a distinctly different entity, and you would have to match it up with who is on the title or who is on the promissory note. And if the names don't match up, then there has to be evidence that there was a transfer or an assignment, well, an endorsement and a transfer of the promissory note or an assignment of the t uh, title. Yeah. And it doesn't I, matter if their name is similar, it's still they have to provide evidence of the transfer and consideration exchanged, etc. I can't tell you the number of people that have just said, well, I've only ever paid one person. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but is it the right person? And then how do you know it's the right person? And have the payments gone to the same place? Or have they changed their servicing on the back end and it's it's different? I mean, you know, just because you write the check to the same company the whole time doesn't mean that it's the same company is what I'm trying to say. So it's for evidence for, to look at, to, to discover and, and figure out whether it is, um, the same company, and just because you're paying the same company or think you're paying the same company, are you really paying?
paying that company? Is that the person that you really think you're paying? And you might have just been paying the, you may be paying the same company, but in your initial weeks or months when you first got a loan, it was changed right then and there. And you didn't even remember that or you or you didn't even see that at all, that, it was, that there was a change happening right in the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. And this was now actually the bank B or bank B service or whatever. You didn't even realize it. That's that's my point. Is I'm trying to point out that just because you think it is the same doesn't mean that it is the same. And without Dakota and trying to understand or chain of title assessment, trying to get to the bottom of it of who who is assigned the deed and who is assigned the note and what are those names and who are those parties and is it the same party? Um, <clears throat> that's that's the key element here is trying to get to the bottom of who's who and what's what. Yeah, and that's what a coda does. I have seen examples where it's um, the, the final, you know, it's such and such for and such and such as, and the final is some series number. Yet when you're looking at the uh, endorsements on the, what the bank provides as evidence, their endorsements on the promissory note, it doesn't show that it went from the first original lender to a depositor to a trustee or or anything. It just shows, like, from Bean Taylor Whitaker, for example, who went out of business, and now suddenly it's J.P. Morgan. And they're claiming that they have the right to enforce. And yet you can see that there was clearly a break in the title because it didn't show that it went through three parties immediately after leaving the first lender and into a trust 206CW, for example. <laughs> you have to give them credit. So when you see that, when you see that it's in a trust number, a trust series, and you don't see that proper succession of how it got transferred through, um, I, I think there's three parties and before it's supposed to be put into the pool, the trust that it's, you know, su- supposedly represented as in the lawsuit. Um, anyway, it just, it, it's really easy to see a break in the chain of custody and uh, title. Okay. Hopefully that made sense and brought some more details of trying to draw you into the let's not just believe what's on the paper, let's really, or or even trying to recall your own memory. Um, you know, let's go by the evidence. Uh, let's be detectives. Let's really uh, pay attention to who's doing what, when, where, how, why, uh, you know, uh, uh, and what for. Um, the reason The reason why everybody's doing these things, so. Given what I've been learning in this training course of, well, I'll say CODA Prepare Plus, is that none of these entities have actually had a valid claim. So if I were in, in any particular situation, I would immediately assume that that entity has no claim to declare that I'm late on a payment or I'm in foreclosure or, yeah, I would go with the assumption that they're an intervening party who has no standing, and so how can I find out what evidence can I gather to, to 
support that suspicion. Uh-huh. I know. And when you start to look in a chain of title assessment, it just like comes there. It is. You know, I mean, it's it's really evident and easy to find. Easy to find. Easy to find the whole Okay, so let's explore this tonight a little bit. Let's just say that you got a loan, right, and you are paying the um, the same the same bank that you got your loan for, right? So is it possible that um, that they have broken the chain of title that way, even though you're still paying the exact same bank that you really got the original loan? Answer is yes. And the reason would be that did they did they break the uh, the note the promissory and bifurcate it and sold to derivative market? So how would they have any interest in the note? That would be one avenue. Number two is, and if they'd done that, then they may be the servicer for their own stuff, you know, so to speak. So that would be why you're accepting payments on that end of it, right? And I think that's two. I think it's a third one. I can't remember off the top of my mind, but. That's the that's the one thing. Even if you are paying the same bank, so you know it's kind of funny though. But if you are paying the same bank, and they and you think that's true, right? But as soon as they go to foreclosure, they change banks right away. I wonder why they do that, and that's because they don't want to be caught with like I guess fraud or holding the bag, and, or, and so to speak. So that may be something to take a look at, even if you are paying the right bank. So I just want to put that for consideration. You know, you do ask a good question. Why do they change servicers or whatever they call themselves just before um, initiating a law, uh, foreclosure proceeding? Well, That's a really would, valid question. Here would be my, my experience and my uh, interpretation both. Um, they change the substitute trustee or they substitute the trustee. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, from my perspective, is, is that, you know, when the borrower is making all the payments, you know, the trustee doesn't need to do anything. He just needs to sit back and relax and, you know, do nothing, okay? There's nothing realistic for them to do, okay? Yet, when the, the minute that person, um, the borrower, makes their first missed payment, well, it, that person now has to put something, a plan of action or, you know, to, to maintain their, you know, stability in court. They have to maintain that. So they put in someone that I would consider is qualified to foreclose on the property. So it'd be like, you know, having a general doctor and all of a sudden, oh, by the way, Mr. Specialist, come over, come over here because... We need some help. We we got something that we can't handle, so we need a specialist in this field. So we need to bring you into the picture because you do nothing but foreclosures. And that's my assertion. Because the other guy, the other guy only knows how to collect payments. And guess what this new trustee works for or associated with or an agent of is exactly the same bank that you're going against. This is that kind of a funny deal that you know you're you know what's happening to you? So. Very possible. So, and I'd entertain anybody else if anybody else has any different ideas, but that's certainly my my thought on it. Mm-hmm. So, anybody have any questions or anything they want to bring to the this roundtable here? Please speak up. You know.
okay having giving others a chance to respond i would like to ask a question of kenny some time ago you mentioned that lawyers are not supposed to solicit they can advertise but they cannot solicit and my question is who can solicit and who cannot i know that some people can because i used to get junk calls all the time trying to sell me on this or that so can you give me an understanding of of where that line is drawn between solicitation and of those who can and who, those who cannot? Well, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by those that can <clears throat> and those that cannot. Well, you... the, I, I just know that some companies do solicit by using uh, people that call up homeowners and ask if they want new storm windows or or whatever. And yet, when uh, one of my local co-workers had gotten a DWI, he said, geez, suddenly he was everybody's, I mean, every lawyer's best friend. They, He got a lot of solicitations to have that particular attorney represent him. Okay. Uh, perhaps if I put it in an example, it may uh, answer the question. You People frequently see on television... Um, Hurt in a car, dial so and so. Automobile, you know, personal injury lawyer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now look at somebody who's calling up someone who just got in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Do you see the difference between the two? Yeah, that the second is solicitation, and the first is advertisement. That's correct. They're allowed to advertise. They're not allowed to solicit. And is that restricted to just attorneys or? That's correct. Now, it's not okay. saying that they can't. And I would suspect that that would be a gray area, but I would think that they could operate under a form of an affiliate, not direct. It would be considered indirect to where you do have persons who would be calling and saying, do you have somebody to represent you? But they're not the attorney. Do you know what, I, what I'm saying? Yeah, but then they couldn't be a referral service either. Oh, they can't be a referral service unless they're operating under, most states have regulations for referral services. Right. Now, I would say that that's a gray area, and they could probably find themselves in hot water, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past the profession that they don't do that. Okay. But the difference in between the two is, directed contact and indirect advertisement. So if you put up a billboard mm-hmm. or something to where it's it's earmarked to the general public, that's considered advertisement. But if you have somebody who is ringing up your phone, you know, they used to call them ambulance chasers, uh, where a party would uh, sustain some form of injury, however you wish to define injury, and then they would pursue that individual, you know. Yeah. They, it, so you'd have, you know, a half a dozen attorneys in a, in a proverbial sense, banging on the door saying, "Pick me, pick me, pick me." Yeah. Um, they're not permitted to solicit. Okay. I, I think that's an interesting conversation because I I do know a few people that um, have some tax issues, and what is interesting is the. 
I'll call it, they call and let me know that they've gotten another letter from an attorney or a postcard, or, you know, by the way, call us if you want your tax lien removed, or call us if you want help with your IRS problems, or anything else, but those letters seem to flow directly to their houses, which I find a little odd. <laughs> yeah, so somebody monitors who the IRS puts a lien against. Well, they just they would go to the county recorder's office and right. and pull up you know tax liens. Yeah. But if that's if, if from my perspective that's solicitation when you receive something personally in your mailbox that says hi call me if you got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> or, maybe those aren't lawyers though. Maybe they're maybe some are maybe some aren't. <clears throat> some of them are. I, I, or, or some of them purport to be because of the name oh. on the envelope. Oh, I see. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, some of them have their their name of their firm on the outside of the envelope. Well, that would be solicitation, whether it's verbal or in print. Yeah. I would expect. Me too. So. Okay. Let's. Either we did a really great job of explaining things or people are just shy and don't have any questions tonight. So whichever it is, if no one has anything further, we might be closing this puppy down tonight. Or for the night, I should say. Okay. Going once. <laughs> well, I, you know, thought I'd give. Are you an off. auctioneer? <laughs> yeah. Going once, going twice, and sold as I as bitter. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.